Hey, ya blork. Welcome back to a brand new episode of Talkin' GC, The X Factor Show. The only podcast devoted solely to the initial Peter David run of 1990s X Factor. I'm your host, Ryan. Today's episode is our third of five episodes covering that initial run. And uh, we are going to continue on and cover issues 78 through 79. I honestly don't remember. Uh, We're covering three more issues of X Factor today, as well as the first X Factor annual uh, after Peter David takes over. Okay, looking at it, we're covering 78, 79, and 80, uh, and uh, depending on time, probably 81, since 81 is actually the issue that kind of closes out the uh, the three-part story that we get in uh, 79, 80, and 81. Um, and then, like I said, we're also covering the X-Factor Annual, which is uh, X-Factor Annual number seven. So I just wanted to throw that out there uh, before we actually jump into our segment. And uh, one other thing as well before we jump into our segment is uh, a little correction that I have to do. <laughs> On the last episode of Talking GC, uh, when we were going through Incredible Hulk 390 through 392, I mentioned the incredible artwork from Dale Keown, and I stand by that. Dale Keown's artwork on The Incredible Hulk was fantastic. There's a reason why uh, he, when when his run on The Incredible Hulk came to an end, there's a reason why he went over to Image Comics and started Pitt. Uh, but my correction comes from the fact that I referred to Dale Keown as the late Dale Keown. Uh, the correction is... Dale Keown is very much alive. <laughs> he he, he uh, did not pass away. I don't know why I thought that. I, I, I've racked my brain to be like, okay, what was the Mandela effect going on? Like, who did I confuse this guy with? Why did I think he was, he was dead? And I can't figure out why. The closest thing I can think of is that I got him confused with the late Mike Wieringo. But, like, they're, they're not really all that similar. They didn't really have any crossover. So I don't know where that came from. Um, again, Dale Keown, very much alive. Uh, so if if you're listening to the episode last week and you're like, oh my gosh, what happened? Uh, nothing. He's he's not dead. He's alive. So, so that is my correction. Like I said, I have no idea where that came from. That was just straight up false. <laughs> Uh, so and and a big thank you uh, to Kurt Schmidt, my uh, you know a, a regular returning guest host on uh, Snicktoons, and uh, someone I'm working on a special project with outside of Talking Snick. So uh, yeah, again, big thanks to uh, to Kurt for pointing that out. He was like, "Hey man, uh, according to the Wikipedia, uh, Dale is still alive." <laughs> so I went back and I was like, "Oh yeah, nope, he's uh, he's he's still here." <laughs> Um, so yeah, that, uh, that does it. That's my correction for, for last week's episode. Uh, so let's dive into today. Uh, so the last issue kind of ended up with, uh, X factor coming face to face with the mutant liberation front, probably my favorite supervillain group of all time, uh, led by the amazing forearm. I do have to admit the, uh, the toy biz 1990s action figure for forearm, was actually really fun. Like it was, that was a really fun action figure. 
having those extra arms to play with and, and pose and everything. That was cool. Uh, it was a cool action figure for sure. But the character is bland. I get like, there's not really much to him. Like he's got four arms and his super villain name is just a terrible pun that clearly was created by like a 19 year old kid uh, who had let fame kind of go to his head and uh, give him the impression that when it came to comic book creating, he could do no wrong. And that is far from the truth. <laughs> uh, but but anyway, let me, let me climb off my anti-Liefeld soapbox here because the dude doesn't deserve all of the hate that I give. Um, like He's a cool dude. So I, I, I don't want to just like bash on Liefeld all the time. Like that's not my, that's not my plan. I just forearm, come on. Anyway, this issue begins with um, the the research clinic, the Tucker Research Clinic, receiving a phone call very early in the morning, like at sunrise. And Dr. Tucker is the only one there. Uh, for those of you who, who have forgotten, Dr. Tucker is the doctor who came up with the like in utero mutant test. So he does some some work, some DNA stuff, and he is able to determine, um, like he gives you like a 55% chance that he's right or wrong, um, about whether or not your child has the X gene and will manifest mutant abilities, uh, during puberty and gives you the option to, uh, terminate that pregnancy. If you don't want to have the risk of having a mutant child. Um, so lots of different implications there politically, philosophically, morally, all kinds of different, um, implications are going into his work. And because of that, he has become a target of the mutant liberation front. The, the last issue ended with strife telling Wildside, who is the like field leader of the MLF that uh, their next mission is to go to this clinic, kill the doctor, and destroy all the research. And so this issue opens up with Dr. Tucker receiving a phone call from a woman who says the Mutant Liberation Front has targeted you, and if I were you, you know, I'd, I'd get out of town and, uh, you know, save yourself. And the guy on the phone's like, who is this? Like, I, I'm not going to like, I'm not going to fall victim to terrorism. Like I'm not going to back down. I don't bow to terrorists, this sort of thing. And then he says to her, like, your voice is familiar. Uh, who, you know, were you a patient? Hello? Hello. And I don't know if it really comes across in the, in the artwork and all that. Um, but it's worth pointing out that this doctor's name is Tucker and a member of the mutant liberation front tempo. Her name is Heather Tucker. And uh, the implication here, because you can't really tell in the artwork uh, because we haven't really seen her out of costume enough. We've only seen the MLF in like one issue of X-Factor so far because they're more uh, X-Force villain team than, than a X-Factor team. And uh, we don't really know that this is Tempo. Um, I think the implications are there. And if you're, if you're one of the people that's reading this book because you read all of the X books, then you probably are able to get that. But I just wanted to point that out. We don't really know that this is Tempo, aka Heather Tucker, uh, but I'm just telling you all, the list, all you listeners, it is. It's Tempo from the MLF calling, obviously her relative. Don't know if it's her father or her uncle or just 
someone in her family could, could be her older brother. Like we don't really know. Um, all we know is that she is calling Dr. Tucker to warn him. And we immediately then go into our story. That was like our opening page. And now we go in, this one is called playing with fire. And we see Val Cooper, Havoc, Quicksilver, Strong Guy, and Jamie Madrox are standing outside of this like room. So they're in like the X Factor brownstone here. And Val Cooper is introducing X Factor to their very own danger room. We actually get a lot of um, government humor. Uh, the fact that government labor is generally not very reliable because they save money by cutting corners and those things. Um, <laughs> so, so we definitely get some more uh, anti-government humor from Peter David, which I always appreciate. Like, I don't care who's in office. I like to poke humor at, uh, you know, the, the federal bureaucracy. Again, I, I don't care if the White House is red or blue. Uh, the federal government deserves uh, all the jokes that are made <laughs> at its expense. Uh, so we get some jokes here. Oh, it's also worth pointing out this issue. The uh, the creative team has changed. So we still have Peter David writing. We still have Larry Stroman on pencils, but we also have additional pencils from Brandon Peterson. And we do still have inks from Al Milgram. But this particular issue, and I don't know if it's going to be a thing from here on out. I guess we'll find out. But the letter is uh, the letterer is Dave Sharp and the colorist is Mike Thomas. So no longer uh, Michael Heisler and Glennis Oliver. Again, don't know if it's like just for this issue or if it's for all the issues going forward. But like I said, I guess we'll find out as we get to those next few issues. Um, so needless to say, Val is uh, trying to explain to X Factor that like from now on, it's going to be required. It's going to be mandatory that the X Factor team trains in their brand new state of the art danger room. And, uh, you know, everyone is, they're all kind of complaining about it, which I don't really understand why. Like half of these people were on the X-Men at some point, you know, Havoc, Polaris, and Wolfsbane. Uh, they've all trained in the danger room at the Xavier Mansion. Uh, maybe they're all just, uh, maybe they share Peter David's outlook on government bureaucracy work. <laughs> um, but needless to say, uh, none of the team is very excited about the fact they are going to be uh, training in the danger room, required to train. So they're all belly aching about it anyway. Val goes to open the door and like the doorknob pops off and they can't even open the door to the danger room. So <laughs> I, I like it. I think it's funny. Uh, again, it's like typical. Every character gets to have like their own little joke that they make at Val's expense, at the expense of the danger room not working and everything. Yeah, I, I love it. It's, you know, classic character work from Peter David centered around like a, a joke that he happens to think is really funny, which is the government is inefficient and lame. <laughs> uh, so the scene changes. We kind of check back in. Well, first we actually see Guido. Uh, he like enters the foyer of the brownstone and there's like a woman waiting to speak with Val. Uh, did I just say vowel to speak with Val? And uh, he tries to flirt with her and uh, it, it somewhat fails. He like brags about himself to this woman that he's hitting on by mentioning the fact that he goes on dates with Sean Young, um, which I guess is enough to 
I don't know, make this woman feel like Guido's then being insincere because she's like, yeah, well, if you go out with people like Sean Young, uh, like, I don't know why you'd be interested in just a regular person like me. So see you later. <laughs> so it was like not a very good humble brag from Guido. Um, and it ultimately dooms his uh, his attempt here. <laughs> so just some more fun poked at Guido. And then we uh, we change scenes. We actually check back in with the Mutant Liberation Front, who in their last appearance, they were able to break Slab and Hairbag out of federal prison. Um, and so we actually see Hairbag and Wildside like training by sparring with one another. Uh, but then it's the, the training session is interrupted as Strife and Mr. Sinister uh, like materialize in the room. And uh, Hairbag is like, I don't want to go back. I want to stay here and play with my new friends. Um, and Mr. Sinister is like, uh, no, we need you back on the team. So he like zaps him with something. I'm assuming some sort of like electrical something or other. And so, uh, you know, at that point, Hairbag agrees to return to the Nasty Boys with with Sinister. We then change scenes yet again. And uh, this is the the conversation that was hinted at at the end of the last issue when Havoc realizes that Mr. S is Mr. Sinister. And he's like, oh, crap, like I should probably tell Scott and Professor X that Mr. Sinister has been confirmed having returned not from the dead, but from the presumption of being dead, kind of like Dale Keown. Um, so, <laughs> so he's telling Cyclops and Xavier that, uh, that Mr. Sinister is back and, and they're not very happy about it as, as they shouldn't be because Sinister is an excellent villain, which means that he's a very effective villain. Um, so it's, yeah, again, not very good that they're, that they're back. Um, Rain is also listening in and she thanks Alex for not mentioning that uh, they ran into Cannonball because at this point, um, the X-Men, as well as X-Factor, they've kind of disowned the the X-Force. You know, they, they were all for it when they were the New Mutants, but when Cable came in and like revamped their mission, uh, all of the other mutants have like turned their back on X-Force that are even, uh, you know, outlaws wanted by the government too, so... <laughs> So rain. <laughs> uh, sorry about that. I uh, <laughs> I was laughing at my my Dale Keown joke there, and I may have uh, some of my saliva went down the wrong pipe. So that was fun. Uh, so if you heard some <laughs> some coughing there, uh, I do apologize. I tried to edit out what I could, but I think some of it stayed in the in the episode. Anyway, rain thanks Alex for you know not telling. Xavier about Cannonball and, and even Polaris kind of comes in and she's like, yeah, that was the right thing to do, Alex. You know, like we might not agree with them right now. We might kind of be opposed to them like philosophically, but they are still our friends and and all that. And like they deserve the benefit of the doubt and, and all that. So uh, the, the the women of X Factor are being appreciative to Alex for not like trying to turn in X-Force or anything like that. But as they're talking, uh, Val comes in. And Val's actually dressed like in an X-Force like 90s field suit. Even she's got just like her regular like tennis shoes on. Um <laughs> which is which is always fun. Uh, but she's got like the she's got like, you know, the the jacket with the buckles on it and everything. She's wearing like an X-Force like tactical field armor. She she actually looks like the it, it looks a lot like the suit that um Alex wears. Like more like Alex's suit even than um like Polaris's suit and all that. 
And uh, uh, she she mentions that uh, they got a call from authorities in Kansas City, and it, it's the Mutant Liberation Front, and so they are on the move. So the next scene, like we see them on the plane, and uh, I really love this line from Rain here. It's like it gets super catty. They're they're like running down the I don't know the hallway to get to the hangar, and uh, Rain's like, "That's some outfit you have on, Val," and Val's like, "You like it." Rain's just like I didn't say that (laughs) oh man I I love how how catty Rain is especially for someone whose ability is to turn into a dog right like she's wolfsbane she's always in this like hybrid human wolf form and she turns into a giant wild dog and uh she's very catty because of that it's 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 great so while they're on the plane we actually get the rundown of what the mission is Val's uh, letting everyone know like the reason why the mutant liberation front is going to Kansas city in the first place, they are going to uh, Dr. Tucker or the Tucker clinic for genetic research. And she's introducing the team to what they do. She's like, you know, the, the new wrinkle is that Tucker's developed an experimental test to determine the likelihood of an unborn child being born a mutant. And that uh, he provides terminations uh, for parents who choose that if they don't like their odds. Um, And of course, this actually sparks some debate on the team, uh, whether or not protecting someone like that is like morally acceptable. Um, We have some members of the team like Havoc saying that it's about it's about choice. You know, it's the parent's choice of what to do. We have people like Rain saying that, uh, like, it's an, it's an abominable act. It's, it's barbaric, which would make sense for a character like Rain, given her, like, hardline, uh, very conservative upbringing. Uh, and then we have people like Polaris, who are kind of, like, in the middle, and they're like, well, our, you know, our mission is to protect people. And, like, Dr. Tucker, whether we agree with what he's doing or not, like he's still a person. And so like, he deserves to be protected. If people are trying to kill him, we have Guido who's like, I'm not getting in this. I'm just here for the paycheck. So tell me what the mission is. I'll complete the mission. And then you have people like Pietro who, uh, says, count me out. Um, after rain objects, then, then have kind of jumps in as the field leader. And he's like, all right, look, rain, you, you object to the mission and that's fine. You can sit it out. Like we're not going to require you, uh, to take part in the mission if you don't believe in it. He's like, I'm not, that's not what I'm all, that's not what I'm about here. I'm not about to force you into doing something that you don't want to do. And so he, he gives the option to the rest of the team. He's like, anyone else wants out of this mission, then like, let me know now. And that's when Pietro says, count me out. Uh, and Val even, she's like, Pietro, Why? And he just says it's personal and that's it. He just leaves it at that. Um, and uh, it, it's really cool. Like I actually like the way, cause it's, a, I mean, it's a, it's a hot button topic. It always has been and it always will be, especially based on where things are in, you know, present day. Uh, but it's handled with, I wouldn't say kid gloves cause it's not handled with kid gloves. Like they get into the philosophical discussion Uh, but like Peter David doesn't seem to put any of his own beliefs in here. Like he, 
he allows the characters to take the stances that work for the characters' attitudes and backstories, which is really cool. Like, I really like it when uh, characters are actually given room to breathe and have their own opinions about stuff. I, I really like when writers do that, where they're able to disconnect their own personal beliefs from what the characters would think or feel. And I think that Peter David like really nailed the the motivations of each character. Uh, I really like that. I I really like the way that he handles this scene and it's a smart way to do it. So again, like regardless of where people stand on any of these issues, it, it makes the book accessible. Next up, we actually go to the Mutant Liberation Front yet again, and we actually see their attack. We've got Wildside and Reaper and Tempo and uh, Strobe is here. And of course, Forearm. And uh, they, they arrive in here. They, you know, Tempo uses her power to uh, slow everybody down. Like all the guards, there's like the police, the local police are there trying to protect the clinic and also dr tucker uh, but of course tempo is able to like slow time down for them so they're moving really slow she kind of speeds time up as well for the mlf so they're able to just like go through all of these people as if they were standing still they bust open the wall and they're talking to dr tucker they're like you know hey doc we're here for two things like one give us all your research so that we can destroy it and two uh you know we're we're here to uh, to terminate you, um, and of course the doctor's like, like you can't threaten me. Well, you can threaten me, but you can't intimidate me. Like I, your threats are falling on deaf ears. Like kill me now, whatever. Uh, you're gonna do what you're gonna do, but like I'm not going to beg for my life or grovel or anything. Like I'm not gonna do it. So like kudos to the doctor for like having the guts to stand up to all these like scary evil mutants like i don't know that i would be able to stay composed if uh these five characters were confronting me as dumb as they are like as dumb as their outfits and stuff are they're still pretty scary uh i don't think i would be able to uh to stand up to them unflinchingly like dr tucker does um so props there of course Wildside's not super impressed and he like slashes at dr tucker's torso uh, I think in the in the artwork, it almost looks like he slashes at his face. Uh, but I think later on in the issue, we'll see that it was actually like at his torso. And it was just because he was falling. Uh, the angle of the shot makes it look like he hit him in the face. But it's he hit him in the stomach and then he's falling. Um, and at this point, uh, Forearm's like, dude, Wildside, that was dumb because like you just killed him. And like now we're supposed to figure out where his research is and wild sides like, uh, no, just destroy everything in here. Like if his research is in here and we destroy everything that's in this clinic, then like mission accomplished, you know? Um, and so they're, they're like destroying everything. And at one point wild side goes to open a door. No, sorry. Reaper. I get them all confused because they all have like pale white faces and they all have like big circles around their eyes. Like, you know, Domino has the one, like circle thing around her eye, like Wildside and Reaper both have big circles. Like, I, like, come on, Rob, like you got to give. You, so strong guy like punches through the door and like hits Reaper. 
Uh, Strobe then hits Strong Guy right in the face with a blast and actually like melts his glasses onto his face, uh, which Strong Guy is not too happy about because like it hurts. Uh, let's see. Forearm is wrestling with Strong Guy, and then like multiple man splits into a bunch of multiples, of course, and comes and like fights Forearm so that Guido can get free. We actually see Polaris taking on Tempo and. <laughs> She's using, oh man, she's using her magnetic abilities to uh, hold on to Tempo's helmet because Tempo just wears like a big metal golden bucket on her head. Obviously, it's not real gold because real gold doesn't react to uh, magnets. Uh, but in this case, this helmet does. So she's like throwing her around, like throwing her into trees and into walls and stuff by the helmet so like that just looks awful she's like crunching the helmet down yeah it looks it looks pretty bad um just another showing of like how powerful polaris is and like how refined her abilities are like she is totally the mistress of magnetism here she's fully in control of her magnetic powers and when she is like she is super formidable um, I don't know if Polaris has ever been quite on the level of Magneto, but if she's not, like, she's pretty close. I think her biggest issue is, like, her own personal self-confidence and image, and that's to be expected for someone who seems to have, like, been mind-controlled several different times. Uh, like, I think having that kind of a, that kind of a crutch of, like, self-doubt uh, is totally understandable for someone who had gone through all of the crap that Lorna's been put through. So I just, again, like I love seeing Lorna kind of like coming into her own and being like as powerful an ex character as, as we've ever had as far as like a superheroine. So yeah, she's awesome. I think this page, uh, this page definitely looks like Brandon Peterson, art like pretty much up to here like every other page that we've had has been like very much larry stroman uh, as far as like how he draws faces and how he draws his various panels and everything um and i think this one is definitely a, a brandon peterson just the line work the, the way the faces are drawn it's very different than how larry stroman draws so i think this is um one of the the brandon Peterson pages. I think most of the pages from here on out, except maybe like the last two or three are, are Larry Stroman. I think like the next four or five pages are, are definitely Brandon Peterson pages. And they're really good. Like, I really like this. Like there's a reason why he had taken over artwork on, I want to say uncanny X-Men after Wills Portacio leaves. Um, I think it was uncanny X-Men that he came in for like a quite a long, a long run until Joe mad comes in and uh, takes over the art on uh, at least Uncanny, if not both X-Books. I want to say he, he just took over Uncanny because um, Andy Kubert takes over Adjectiveless and stays on that pretty much through through the 90s. Um, so, but yeah, so Brandon Peterson, really good art here. Um, I love this because like we really get like Lorna's hair, uh, super wild and everything. And like she looks super tough. And then um, she's being attacked from behind. Like as she's attacking Tempo, Wildside has like snuck up behind Lorna and he's like lunging at her. Uh, but before Lorna can do anything, um, Wildside is actually tackled out of midair by Wolfsbane. And I'm really liking this. It was like 
when Lorna stepped up and uh, like helped Sam escape, like I feel like that was the turning point in Lorna and Rain's relationship. Like up to this point, they had kind of been like adversarial because of Rain's like infatuation with Alex due to all of the Genosha stuff. And like they kind of weren't finally able to turn a page with all of the cannonball stuff. And so like we're starting to see them like becoming close. Like we're actually starting to see them go from being like adversaries on a team, like frenemies to like actual friends and like actually having a relationship together, which is really great. Uh, So she, she tackles wild side and like tells Lorna, like, yeah, I owed you. I owed you for, you know, when you stuck up for Sam um, against Alex, like I really appreciated that. And like, this is how I've repaid you. And uh, as Wildside and Tempo are like out of commission and they're talking, um, Wildside kind of comes to and he's like, let's escape. We got to get out of here. And so like he has zero open like a, a portal and like he's telling the MLF to escape. Um, and uh, Wolfsbane's like chasing him, but then she gets a, a whiff of blood. And so she kind of follows the the blood scent and it leads them back into the clinic. They find a bomb. Polaris is like, I'll take care of the bomb with my magnetic powers. And so Rain continues following the scent of blood. Meanwhile, we check back in really quick with, uh, with Forearm, who is like just completely tied up by a uh, multiple man here. Like you got one, one dupe on each arm, one dupe on like each leg. Uh, yeah, so so Guido and uh, and Jamie are like teamed up. They're taking on forearm. They're they're making jokes. <laughs> they're making jokes about his arm, which I love. <laughs> it's like take that, you stupid character, you. Uh, yeah, it's really good. Um, and then uh, Rain, we we check back in with Rain again, and we see Doctor Tucker who is referred to incorrectly as Dr. Taylor. Like the clinic is actually referred to as the Taylor clinic on the monitor. Um, even though we know it's the, the Tucker clinic. Um, either way, uh, rain finds Dr. Tucker and he's like dying. He's like bleeding out from the attack from uh, Wildside, And he's like, um, like I'm going to die, but it's okay. Like I'm transferring all of my research right now onto this disc. Like you have to give it to the government. Uh, so that the government can continue my research and everything. Um, and like, you know, this obviously is going to come to a conundrum for rain, uh, because rain didn't even want to take part in the mission at all. And the only reason why she did in the first place is to save Lorna from the attack from Wildside. Um, and so now of like, of all the members of the team, she's the one that doesn't want to save Dr. Tucker. She's the one that doesn't want the research to be preserved and yet she's the one that finds him and she's the one who he tells to give the information to the government. So I really like that Peter David puts rain in this situation because we're going to see her make a decision here uh, real soon. But first we're going to check back in one last time with like the X factor team and the MLF. And as they are escaping zero is forced to close the portal and it actually severs uh reaper's leg from like the knee down so that was pretty gross uh anyway we go back into rain and like dr tucker has died 
and she's watching the computer as it's downloading all of the all of the data and she hits the escape key she stops the transfer and then she destroys the computer um and as she's like destroying the computer she real like she senses i don't know if she hears or smells or whatever but she realizes that lorna is behind her and she's like lorna that's you behind me isn't it and then lorna says you know of course and she says you could have tried to stop me and polaris just responds like yes but you see you had a decision to make and i didn't feel it was my place to tell you that you couldn't make it um, so just like a really interesting way of letting rain kind of deal with what she was dealing with um, and again it's like another moment that we have between lorna and rain that like they understand one another and like they're actually there for each other to let each other make the decisions that they need to make like she's pretty much saying like i'm not your boss you know i'm not your mom um if anything like we're we're sisters on this team and that means i'm gonna let you make your own decisions like it's not my place to stop you uh, we also check back in with strife and the mlf as like and i think it's fun <laughs> I like this part because we see Reaper like strapped to like a doctor, like a gurney. I don't know why I was going to say it. I was literally going to say a doctor chair, but that's not right. <laughs> like that's not even, if anything, it's like a, a, a hospital bed, like a, a, it's not even like a doctor bed. I don't know where I was going with that. Um, but I like that Strife has like a medical team uh, and they even have like their own uniforms and everything. Like they look like superhero uniforms that are also like red cross. Uh, it's just weird that like you feel like strife would probably have some sort of like doctor skills or something because like all supervillains seem to be able to do that. Like they all seem to be like genetic experts, at least X-Men villains. Um, but it's funny because like he's got like his own medical staff in like wherever, like somewhere on his payroll, like he, <laughs> he's like, oh man, like we're going to have to make some cuts again, you know, so we've got to cut one of our first aid guys. <laughs> like, it's just funny. So they've got uh, Reaper on the gurney and like the medical staff is like wheeling him off to wherever. And uh, he mentions something. He's like, uh, you know, um, Oh, there's also a Darth Wildside makes a Darth Vader reference to Reaper, which is really cool. And because uh, he's already got like a metal hand and now he's going to have a, an artificial foot. <laughs> so so I like that. Um, and then Strife kind of pulls up. He's like, uh, what is it that he mentions? He says, uh, what I find disturbing is that X Factor showed up at all. Do any of you have a clue how they knew? Um, and he, he, he asks like, you know, forearm wild side, and then he stops on tempo and, you know, she's taken off her helmet. Her face is all battered and everything. Cause Lorna's awesome and fought her really well. And, uh, she's like, no, no idea. And, uh, he just mentions, he's like, let us all hope that was a one-time aberration, perhaps due to some fluke personal involvement with Dr. Tucker and that it will not happen again. Uh, so he's pretty much telling her, like, I know it was you. I know that you were related to that guy. I don't know how, um, but like it, it better not happen again. And she pretty much just says, like, yeah, no, it's not going to. As long as we don't, uh, you know, go after my relatives again, then then we're not going to have a, a problem. And then we get one last page, which is like just a really great moment from Pietro. And uh, at this point, they're like asking him, you know, like why Rain's kind of saying that like she feels guilty 
that they weren't able to save Dr. Tucker. Um, like she doesn't have any regrets destroying the research or anything, but like she does in fact regret that they didn't get there fast enough to save Dr. Tucker because, you know, he's, he's alive and he's a person and he has a right to live uh, just as any other living person. And so she does feel, she does feel bad. Uh, especially knowing that he died. Like she's like, you know, we, we could have saved him if we got there faster or whatever. So she does, she is having some regrets there. Um, and then they start asking Pietro and they're like, well, you know, maybe if, if we all fought sooner or got there faster, like we could have saved him, you know, isn't that right, Pietro? And he just like responds with like, I have a daughter. And they're like, what? We didn't know that. And he's like, yeah, she was born. And I'm, I'm going to read this whole thing. Uh, so she was born with no powers, no special abilities, no mutant gene. I even tried to change her, but decided not to take the chance. And I remember thinking that if only I had known by my definition that she was going to be a freak, that it would have been better if she'd never been born. He says, those idiotic thoughts were the beginning of the wedge driven between Crystal and myself. I was such a fool. If she'd never been born, then I could never have held her. I didn't realize she had the right to be born human, but because I didn't appreciate and cherish her existence, she's as good as lost to me, and now I cannot hold her, and I will probably end up a stranger to her. All she wanted to do was love me, and I wasn't willing to accept her until it was too late. Makes me wonder just who the real freak in the family was. So not really a, a statement on anything in particular, mostly just the fact that like he didn't love his daughter and now he regrets that uh, because taking that stance is what drove him and his wife apart and now he doesn't get to be a part of either of their lives. Just it's a way that Peter David humanizes Quicksilver. Like up to this point, Quicksilver is just like the the jerk. Uh, and I mentioned, I think like maybe in the first episode, that uh, like Peter David had turned me into like a huge Quicksilver fan because of his run. And like, this was kind of the beginning of that. Like we'd seen him make some jokes and stuff and, and, you know, be arrogant and all that and be like the likable jerk on the team. Um, but like, he's starting to like dig deeper and like peel back the layers of why Pietro is that way. Um, and this is a, a big reason um, for Pietro's behavior. So I really like that he does this, with with Quicksilver, we actually see um, in later issues we see a few more reasons where Quicksilver kind of explains his like haughty behavior, uh, and we actually get some moments between him and Crystal as well that are that are really interesting personal character moments. So that was issue seventy eight. Next up is our um, X Factor Annual number seven. Now all of the annuals from 1992 were, uh, they, they were all telling this one story. It was a story called Shattershot. And it was like this big Mojo storyline with like Mojo and Spiral and like Longshot and all of that. And I, I don't know if it was carried over through like all five of the X-Men titles. Um, in 1992, or if it was like only certain ones, this particular annual, the the X Factor annual, this is part three of that Shattershot story. Again, I don't know if it was like 
in both X-Men and Uncanny X-Men and, and then X-Factor, X-Force. I would think it's in all of them. I would assume that it's in the Excalibur annual as well because it's it's Mojo and Mojo has a lot of ties to Excalibur comics and all that. Um, but we're actually not covering the X-Factor part of this story. It was written by Fabian Nicieza with art from, from Joe Quesada and it's it's definitely worth reading. Uh, but it's part of a larger story and uh, it's not written by Peter David. So I'm not really going over it. Uh, like I said, again, though, it is worth reading. It's a good story. It's uh, it's part three of this like overarching story that was told through all of the 92 annuals. Um, but it doesn't really factor in too much to the, uh, the, the Peter David run overall. And uh, so we're only covering in, in X Factor annual number seven, the 1992 annual, we're only covering two short stories. These are like seven or eight page stories, uh, but these ones were done by Peter David. So the first one is called Drowning in Paperwork, and that one was written by Peter David, penciled by Derek Robertson, inks from Andrew uh, Pe- Pepoy, Pepoy uh, letters from Dave Sharp, and colors from Gina Going. And then the second story is called Cal and Guido. And this one was written by Peter David. Pencils from Joe Madrera, so Joe Mad. Um, again, inks from uh, Andrew Peepoy, letters from Dave Sharp, and colors from Kelly Corvezzi. So the, uh, yeah, the the one from Quesada and Dave uh, uh, Nicieza is pretty good. But like I said, it it's part of like a, a larger story. We actually do get to see the um, the X Factor mobile again, which is nice. I always like when that thing shows up, and there's some really great action. Like Val actually joins the team in the field again, and all that. So definitely worth reading. Uh, and, and Quesada's artwork's pretty good. It's like a, a hint of things to come when Peter David leaves the book, um, and we get like Scott Lobdell coming in to write for a little while. We actually get Joe Quesada doing the artwork. Um, like in the interim. So not bad, not bad. Um, like I said, it's it's kind of like a, a primer for things to come, but again, not done by Peter David, so not really covering it. So we go to Drowning in Paperwork, and it says Val Cooper is home alone and Drowning in Paperwork. It actually starts with like a splash page of Val just screaming uh, as you're like looking directly into her face. And we see that she's she's at her desk. Like the last few issues, she's kind of been joining X Factor in the field, which means she hasn't been in the office. And so now she's super backed up on her paperwork. Um, yeah, I, uh, I really like all this stuff here. So, so Val's in her desk and she's like yelling like, Baldrick, get in here. And he comes in and she's like, what happened to all this? Uh, what, what, like, where did all this paperwork come from? And he's like, well, you know, you've been, you've been out in the field, you know, like you've been, uh, you were out of town and then you were like in the field, like as part of the team. And so you weren't here to do all this paperwork. So yeah, there you go. Like now, now you have all this, all this stuff. And (laughs) she, she gets mad um, because it all needs to be done like immediately because, you know, it's, it's bureaucratic paperwork there are deadlines for when this stuff has to be filed and uh she's really mad because she has tickets to the kennedy center salute to motown 
which is a, a very, you know, world-renowned record label. Um, and some of their greatest artists are here to do this concert. She mentions like Stevie Wonder and um, Aretha Franklin, and she's really not happy that she's going to miss this concert uh, unless she gets all of this this paperwork done. And so like almost immediately after she says like, I have tickets to Motown, like this sucks. Like what am I supposed to do? The phone rings and it's the president. At least that's what she thinks. The president is pretty much saying like, you need to have all of this paperwork in the white house by tomorrow, like no options. Um, You need to have all of this done immediately. Like I need this on my desk tomorrow. Of course, we actually turn the page and we see that it's not really uh, Big Bush. It's actually Jamie Madrox uh, doing an impression of the president on the phone uh, in order to trick Val into thinking that she's going to have to miss the concert. (laughs) Jamie, like immediately, as soon as the phone calls over, like he sticks his head in the door. He's like, hey, Val, didn't realize you were in the office. Uh, It's too too bad. Like I'm heading out. So I'll see you later. (laughs) and Val's like wait hang on for a sec Jamie like uh I'm not going to be able to go to this and uh, I know that you were a big fan of Motown so why don't you take these tickets and uh, and go to the show and he's like oh gee thanks Val that's so nice of you so so he accepts the tickets and him and Rain are (laughs) going to uh attend the the Motown concert while Val is stuck in the office doing paperwork (laughs) so she's trying to like psych herself up she's like it's okay val you're a bureaucrat you live for this sort of you know triplicate rubber stamping and all that Uh, so so she's burning the midnight oil now it's been like two hours and uh, she's been doing all this paperwork she's barely like halfway through and uh, she falls asleep because you know paperwork is boring even if you live for that sort of thing even if you were, even if your calling in life is to just be a cog in the wheel of bureaucracy, no, not the wheel, a cog in the machine of, of bureaucracy, uh, it, paperwork is still very dull and boring and you're going to fall asleep if you're doing it at like one o'clock in the morning. And I think she's only, it's like nine o'clock at night, but she's, she's out. She's, she's tired of it. So she falls asleep and she appears to wake up. And there's like a monster, like a three-headed Hydra monster that's made out of the paperwork. It's calling to her. It's like, Valerie. And she wakes up and it's like, fold me, spindle me, mutilate me, all of these things. And she's like, she grabs a letter opener and like scissors. And she's like, you know, back, have it, you monster, back, you know. And she uses the scissors. She like cuts the three heads off of this like paper Hydra and uh, the paper just like reforms itself into like a, like a blob of paper, and it's like chasing her down the hallway. They're like, it's saying stuff like, "I thought you loved us, but you turned against us." And one of them's like, "I'll ream you out for that." So I'm really loving, uh, you know, Peter David's like paper puns. Like I think Michael Scott would appreciate what's going on here with all of these, uh, all of this paper. Hopefully, the government got it from Dunder Mifflin. Anyway, eventually this like blob of paperwork chases her into like the copy room. But luckily in the copy room, there's also a paper shredder. 
the paper comes through the door and it's attacking her. She like grabs it by its neck and eventually puts it in the, <laughs> like, I love this sequence. It's like, she's shoving this like paper monster into the, uh, the shredder. She's hitting the start button as it's like shredding. The monster is like screaming in pain as all of the paper gets shredded. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and afterwards it like, it pulls itself into an even worse paper monster now it's like a zombie paper monster if you can even uh like imagine what this looks like i'll throw some some pictures of it on the discord because it's really fun um and like it it starts attacking her again she's screaming and then we're like in in like not necessarily present day but like we're in the real world now and we see that she's being shaken awake by jamie who is feeling guilty and he's like, look, you know, that wasn't the president. That was us. We only called you and told you that so that we could, uh, you know, swindle you and get those tickets. We're really sorry. Take the tickets. If you head now, you can still see the second half of the show. We're really sorry. Uh, <laughs> and she gets really mad, of course. She's like, Jamie, if I were you, I'd start running at triple speed. And she starts chasing him with scissors and a letter opener. Uh <laughs> Jamie's like, no, you can't run with sharp objects, Val. Like, it's not allowed and all that. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's just a fun, like, little eight-page kind of like a joke thing. I don't know. It's just, it's really good. I actually really like how Derek Robertson draws Rain because, like, even though she's in her, like, wolf-human hybrid form, he still draws her as being like very stylish. Like she still manages to do her hair very stylishly. She's still got makeup on and lipstick and earrings and stuff. Like he draws her like a typical nineties teenager. She's got her like Scottish plaid skirt, you know, not a kilt cause she's not a dude, but like, you know, her like Scottish skirt and everything. Like she definitely looks like a Scottish schoolgirl. Uh, which, you know, I don't know. It, it makes sense. Like it's, we usually in the pages of, of the X factor or like proper comics, she's usually in uniform, um, in her hybrid form. So it's kind of cool to see her like just wearing like regular clothes, you know, as like a nineties kid. So that was, that was uh, drowning in paperwork. Next up, we have like another little short story. This one's called Cal and Guido. Um, again, I mentioned like Joe mad pencils and like these, these are good. You can see why Joe Mad starts getting himself um, like ingratiated with the X office and how he's able to um, like eventually become like the de facto, the definitive 90s X-Men artist. But this early stuff is still a little rough. But again, he's like he's drawing kids here. So like it makes sense that they're all like super skinny and everything. Um so it's called Cal and Guido. The, uh, the way it's written, it's like the lettering is like Calvin and Hobbes. Um, and like even the kid, he's wearing like a red shirt with like stripes on it. He's got blonde hair, like very much inspired by Calvin and Hobbes. Um, you can tell that Peter David was probably a big fan of the, uh, the Calvin and Hobbes strip and, uh, you know, collected it works and all that. Uh, I, I liked Calvin and Hobbes as a kid, never really got into it. Like I was more of a, a far side guy, uh, like far side was probably my strip of choice. And like Garfield, like, you know, one of the classics from, uh, what Jim Davis, I think was the one that does, that does Garfield. And like, I'm drawing a blank on the dude's name 
that does far side. So I feel bad about that, but either way, um, I think at some point there's actually a reference to Bill Watterson in these eight pages. That's the guy that does Calvin and Hobbes. So either way, um, even one of the bullies here is like wearing a t-shirt that has Hobbes on it. So it's pretty cool, but it's this kid named Cal and he's like being picked on by the bullies at his school. And they're like, give us your lunch money. Why are you always reading books and all that? And he's like being shaken down. He has to give the kid his, uh, you know, the, the big bully kid, his uh, lunch money. And then, um, like even the other like nerdy girl even like doesn't like him. He's like, thanks for leaping to my defense and all that. And she's like, I didn't. He's like, yeah, I was, I was being sarcastic. So it's like the last straw for this Cal kid. He's like, this sucks. He like climbs the fence and leaves school. And he runs to this like brownstone in like downtown Washington, DC. He's knocking on the door. Guido answers, looks around, doesn't see anybody, closes the door, knocks again. He, again, he opens it. He's looking around and the kid's like, Hey, I'm down here. And Guido's like, what? So he looks down. He's like, Oh, it's a kid. That's weird. And the kid's like, look, this is the last money I have. I want to hire you. And Guido's like, uh, we work for the government dude. Like we're not for hire. And the, the, you know, the kid's like, he's crying. He's got, you know, his big puppy dog eyes. He's got tears streaming down. And he's like, I can't take it anymore. Like these bullies have pushed me you know, to, to the last straw. And of course, at that point, Guido's like bullies, like, oh, I, I understand kid. Like I, I was bullied as a kid as well. And the, you know, one thing I've learned about bullies in, in my, you know, my years as a, as a wise superhero is that, uh, you know, bullies are, you know, deep down inside they're cowards. And so if you stand up to them, that's usually all it takes for the bullies to lay off. So Guido's like, I have an idea. And uh, it's like the next day at the schoolyard and the kid's hanging out at the fence as he usually does. And of course the bullies spot him. They make a beeline, they come over, they're picking on him. And at that point he kind of like, you know, whistles and Guido appears and like hops over the fence. And uh, this cow kid is like, this is my new pal Guido. We're best buds and all that. So uh, anyone got a problem with me, they've got a problem with Guido. And so Guido just, you know, he flexes his muscles a little bit, threatens the kid with, uh, you know, great violence, which is probably not appropriate for a government employee <laughs> to be threatening like an elementary school kid with, uh, with bodily harm, but he does. And that's pretty much it. He's like, all right, now you guys get the drill. Like Cal's my friend. So anyone's got a problem with Cal's got a problem with me and I'll, uh, I'll handle it. So from that point on, everyone's real nice to the kid. Some time passes, you know, a few weeks or whatnot. Guido's walking by the schoolyard and he's like, oh, hey, wait a minute. This is uh, this is where my pal Cal goes to school. I'll see if he's been up to anything, uh, anything interesting lately. So he walks over and he sees that like this Cal kid has like created a criminal empire. Like now Cal is like shaking down the bullies. He's uh, terrorizing all the other kids. <laughs> And so Guido's like, hey, wait a minute. And he picks him up. He's like, dude, like, what are you, what are you doing? Like, I, I protected you so that the bullies would stop picking on you. He's like, I didn't stand up for you so that you could then become a bully in turn. And he, <laughs> he picks the kid up. He picks up Cal by his foot. He's like shaking him so that all the money's falling out of his pockets. He makes Cal like give the jacket back to the, to the boss, <laughs> not the boss, to the bully the original bully. And everyone's like, all right, like, here's the deal. We're not going to mess with Cal. 
because, uh, you know, strong guy will come strong arm us. Uh, but we don't have to be afraid of him because, you know, Guido admitted that like he just doesn't want anyone bullying anybody else. So uh, everyone leaves. The one girl like kicks cow while he's down. She's like, you big jerk. You made us all afraid of you. Like, I'm going to go tell your mom that you were shaking us all down. And uh, everyone leaves and Cal's like, man, nobody appreciates men of vision. And that was that. Like, that was just like a fun little uh, eight page storyline where uh, Guido gets suckered into like helping this kid go from being bullied to like being the leader of like a, a schoolyard criminal empire. It's fun stuff. <laughs> so that takes us into like a new three part storyline. Uh, this one in issue 79, it's called Rhapsody of Death. And on the cover here, it's a really fun cover. We've got uh, Quicksilver and Jamie just like having a grand old time as this like blue chick is standing with like a violin and like the background of the music or it's <laughs> the background of the cover is like music sheet. Um, so it's really interesting. So the issue starts out, it's another, not necessarily a splash page, but it's another, uh, you know, story defining page, kind of like how we saw him do on the last one where there's one page that kind of sets up the story and then it goes into the regular stuff. It almost reminds me of, well, and it makes sense for Peter David, right? But it kind of makes, it reminds me of like how TV shows would open like in the 90s, like think like X-Files. Um, it would always start with like the introduction of whatever the particular episode was about. So if it was like a Bigfoot episode, then like the opening scene would be like a Bigfoot scene and then it would cut to like the opening credits and then it would cut to like Mulder and Scully. Right. And like their whole thing. So we're seeing that in this case, there's like a study and there's like a dude sitting in a chair in a study, real nice study. Um, there's like a dude sitting in his chair in the study and is a woman comes in and she's like, Harry, you know, did you, did you fall asleep reading again? Aren't you ever coming to bed? And she walks over and she realizes the dude sitting in the chair is like, he's dead. Um, this is an elderly couple. So, you know, could be like, you know, possible heart attacks or whatever. But as she's looking at Harry and like trying to figure out what happened, she glances at the window and there's like a blue woman standing in the window looking in and uh she starts screaming like ah you know like so the mystery has been solved like this blue person outside did they kill the dude in the chair um and then when we turn the page it's we're checking back in with x factor so like i said it kind of has that like you know 90s tv formula where it's like here's the here's what this issue is about and then we're going to check in with the team as they like get their mission. So this one says Rhapsody in blue is the, the name of the issue. Uh, it's composed by Peter David melody from Jim Fern harmony from Al Milgram notes by Michael Heisler chorus by Glynis Oliver. Um, so again, uh, Larry Stroman did, uh, you know, he missed a few pages in the last issue and now he's not penciling, this one. So I'd be curious to see, I don't remember exactly when Stroman leaves the, leaves the title, but maybe it's right around here. Who knows? I guess we'll, we'll have to keep 
reading and find out. But either way, we've got multiple men and one of his dupes. They're sitting at this piano playing, and it's terrible. Everyone hates it. Uh, let's see. At that point, uh, Quicksilver says, I could do better than that. Guido takes him up on the bet, like bets him 20 bucks that he can't. So at this point, <laughs> Quicksilver walks over and he's like, get out of here, you know, Jamie. I'm going to play the piano because I can play better than you. And it takes him a, a little while. Like he starts just like hammering the keys at like super speed. It creates just this terrible ruckus. And Guido's like, man, this is going to be the easiest 20 bucks I ever, I ever got. At some point, like the terrible cacophony of noise even gets like Rain and Lorna to come running in and be like, what's happening? What's going on? <laughs> Lorna, she runs in. She's like, what are you guys doing in here? Sacrificing a yak? <laughs> even Val comes in at this point. And she's like, shut up. Like, you've got to stop. And as they're all yelling at Quicksilver, suddenly it suddenly it changes. Like, it's no longer this terrible sound. All of a sudden, it's this beautiful melody. Um, Even Rain mentions, she says, like, good heavens, that's lovely. That's the Moonlight Sonata. It's my favorite piece. So I have to agree with Rain. Big Beethoven fan here. Moonlight Sonata, probably my my favorite piece of Beethoven's. So, yeah. Um, Even even Jamie has to say, like, even Jamie says, Pietro, I, I hate to admit it, but that's gorgeous. And uh, Guido walks over. He hands twenty bucks to uh, to Pietro. He's like, "I hate it," and all that. And it was like, "Yeah, they're like, what if you were able to play so beautifully? Like, what what were you doing at the beginning?" He's like, "Oh, I was teaching myself how to play the piano at super speed. Like, I was just, I was learning all the chords and everything, or all the keys, I should say." Um, so there we go. Just like a fun little character moment. Um, he has his little apocalypse, he has his little apocalypse moment right here where, uh, <laughs> Polaris says, what do you call that hideous racket before? And we get like this, uh, this like in panel of, uh, Pietro's face and he's smiling and he's just saying the word learning. And like, I can't not read that as like the terrible apocalypse moment in X-Men apocalypse where he's like touching the TV and like absorbing pop culture. <laughs> And they're like, what are you doing? And he's like, learning, he says, and is like terrible. I don't know. Yeah. So I can't like not hear his weird, like apocalypse is weird, like ET voice saying learning. <laughs> um, but at this point, we actually cut up to Two Forks, Maine, and we see this blue woman being chased by police. They're like yelling at her through their like microphones, like, Miss Argosi, this is the police. You must stop running away. And she's running from the police. She runs by a music store. She just like breaks the window. I guess maybe it's like Sunday morning and things aren't open yet. She like punches the window, breaks in, like jumps into this music store, grabs a violin and starts playing the violin. And it like entrances the police. They're not able to like do anything. They're like enthralled by the music to the point where they're like frozen and as she's playing the violin we see all these like musical notes coming out of the violin and it like carries her up into the sky and she floats away so i have like no idea what's going on i don't i don't know what her music power is clearly she's able to um like manipulate music somehow i don't know why she's blue either like none of that's really explained 
um, but she escapes. We uh, we check back in with X Factor at this point, and we see Guido preparing for a date. He's got like a nice suit on. He's slicking back his little like spit curl of hair that he has. He's uh he's you know he's preparing his tie. Jamie comes over and he's like teasing her and all that. And he's like, yeah, you know, I've I've got to look my best because I'm showing Sean around town. And uh, <laughs> Jamie's like, dude, give it a rest. No one believes that you're going on dates with Sean Young. That's absolutely ridiculous. Then there's a knock at the door. Jamie goes to answer the door along with Guido. And who else is standing on the like front porch but Sean Young herself? You know, beautiful actress from the early 90s. Um, not uh, not without some like strange kind of controversy. So the whole story with Sean Young is she missed out on the role of Lois Lane in the original 1989 Tim Burton Batman. She was supposed to play Lois Lane, and for some reason she had to back out. I can't remember if it was like she got in. I thought I want to say it was like she got injured, but I'm not entirely sure if I'm remembering it correctly. It might have just been she had to bow out due to like other um what is the what is the word? Like other um it starts with a C, doesn't it? Like other, uh, either way, she had like other things that she had to do. I'm like drawing a blank on this word right now. Other commitments. Sheesh. So she, like, I don't know if it was like, cause she had other commitments or if it was like she was injured, but she had, she was replaced on uh, Batman 89 with Kim Basinger as uh, not Lois Lane, Vicki Vale. And um, after she missed out on the role of Vicki Vale, she like petitioned, Tim Burton to be cast as Selena Kyle, AKA Catwoman for Batman returns. And like, there's this whole story that like she showed up to Tim Burton's house in like a homemade Catwoman costume to try to win the role. But the role had already been given to Michelle Pfeiffer and like most of Michelle Pfeiffer's scenes had already been recorded. (laughs) So that's like the whole story there behind like Sean Young and how she missed out on both the role of Vicky Vale and Catwoman. Uh, but she shows up to this date with Guido in the Catwoman costume. And even Guido's like, you know, you, you look great as always, babe. But like, I got to be honest, like the film's wrapped. It's in the can. Michelle got the part. It's not going to happen for you and all that. And she's like, ah, whatever you say. and so they head out on their date anyway with guido looking you know super dapper in his suit and sean young wearing her um homemade catwoman costume (laughs) oh man and uh (laughs) even jamie's like no way that's not sean young that's just some random woman dressed in a catwoman costume like this is all just a joke and everything and he's like sitting there like thinking about it like not gonna fall for it and like quicksilver shows up and he's like hey jamie like you and i have been volunteered for this thing up in maine so take a few deep breaths and that's that's that they just like they sprint as quicksilver does at super speed to maine where we see like the citizens of this town in maine which is called two forks which I guess is supposed to be like Twin Peaks. I don't know if Two Forks is a real town in Maine or not, but because we know that Peter David is a big Twin Peaks fan, I would think like Twin Peaks, Two Forks, there's got to be something there. Maybe I'm like completely off base, but it's got to be something like that, right? 
either way, um, they're in like the police headquarters here and like the townsfolk are like, you need to, she's a murderer. You need to find, uh, you need to find Miss Argosi. You need to bring her in. Like she, she murdered Harry and everything. And like, as everyone's yelling at the police who were like, look, we're doing the best we can. We've even got some specialists coming in like Quicksilver and Jamie arrive on the scene and they're like, we're the specialists. And, uh, you know, we're going to, we're, we'll find her, we'll bring her in, but like, we're going to stick around and make sure she gets a fair trial because clearly all of you people are bigots, um, and all that. So there you go. Uh, meanwhile, we actually have a scene of Polaris in downtown Washington, DC. She's taking the day off from X factor. She's doing some window shopping. There's like this beautiful dress in the window and like, you know, she's in her head and all that. She's like, you know, I've got this itch. Maybe if I wear this dress, I can convince Alex to scratch it for me. It's been a while. Like I I thought things were going fine, but like we've been in the field so often lately that like Alex and I haven't really been able to build on like that first kind of conversation we had about us. Uh, And then someone like taps her on the shoulder and they're like, Hey, you're with X factor. And I'm going to tell you like, don't protect Marilyn Maycroft. And Polaris is like, what? I beg your pardon. But before she can finish, someone with like a metal fist just like clocks her right in the chin and like knocks her out cold right there on the street. So at this point, we uh, we actually check back in yet again with Quicksilver and uh, Multiple Man. And they're talking to uh, all these other people. They're like trying to get information on this uh, Miss Argosi lady. Turns out she was like the music teacher at the school and her mutant powers like manifested super late. Like she's like in her early 20s and all of a sudden her powers manifested. Next thing you know, she's all blue. Like she used to be this like beautiful blonde chick. Now she's like this. She's got blue skin and blue hair and blue eyes and blue lips and everything. Um, and like the kids really loved her, her music class, but you know, they, uh, the school board had a vote and like the parents of the children didn't want their kids being taught by a mutant teacher. So like they, they fired her, Harry and this guy named Dick Roper, like they were the ones that like cast the, the votes to, to fire her. And they're like, we think that she's like just trying to kill all of these people who fired her. Um, so we don't really know. Like all we know is that Harry was found dead. His heart had just stopped and she was at the scene. She fled the scene. So like, obviously, you know, that means we know that she's guilty. And, uh, last time we saw her was over here. And then they get like a report that she was spotted in the industrial park. And so Quicksilver and uh, multiple man like run out to the scene and we see her again like flying on her music. Like, again, I don't know how her powers work. Apparently she's able to make her music do whatever she wants. So she's just like playing the violin as she's like floating through the sky and she lands on top of like an abandoned warehouse. So Quicksilver and Jamie, they run in, they, they see her like Quicksilver runs up to the roof and like dives through the skylight of the building and he like tackles her down. She drops her violin. And uh, before Quicksilver can recover from like hitting his head, I guess when he fell, she like whips out a flute. It looks more like a recorder 
she just like whips it out of her pocket and she's playing. Meanwhile, like we see Jamie has like split into a, like, you know, 12 dupes or so. And they're like running through, like, you know, going through this warehouse with a fine comb. Um, eventually he comes across this woman playing the flute. And uh, we see the Quicksilver's like in a trance. He's talking about Crystal and he like grabs her. And he's like, listen, lady, you're like, we're bringing you in. And then she starts playing. We see all of like the musical notes, like envelop Jamie now and like puts him into a trance. There's like this weird moment where um, he's like in his farm in Kansas where he grew up, probably just right down the road from Clark Kent. And he's like naked. He's just like naked standing in his cornfield there in Kansas. And uh, she appears also naked. Uh, like, you know, the, the, the corn stalks are covering up all the bits that you, you know, you're not supposed to see. And she's like talking to him. She's like, hello, my love. We make beautiful music together, don't we? And, uh, he's, he's there in the cornfield. All of a sudden he's not, he like falls over in real life. And we see that, uh, like all of his dupes have caught up with him and like, they've been able to like wrestle the recorder or the flute away from, from her and so they're able to to take her into custody at one point though um <laughs> one of the jamies probably jamie prime like comes over to, to pietro and he's like look man i she's beautiful she's innocent i just i i know that she's not guilty like i know there's more to it than this like please back me up like let's stay a little bit longer and, uh, you know, make sure that she gets a fair trial and that, uh, you know, if she is in fact innocent, that she's found that way. Like, let's do some PI work and Quicksilver's like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to regret this, but sure, I'll back you up. And uh, <laughs> Jamie says to him, like, thanks, Pietro. I knew you couldn't be the complete dirtbag that everyone else says you are. And uh, <laughs> Quicksilver's like, well, of course, I'm not the bad guy that everyone. Wait a minute. What do you mean everyone? And then we, we go into our last page here of, uh, of issue 79 and, uh, we're back in Washington, DC and it looks like X factor has taken up another job as well. So like they're splitting themselves. We've got, we've got Pietro and Jamie up in Maine. And now we have Val showing Lorna a picture. She's like, here's the next thing that we're doing. This is a woman named Marilyn Maycroft. Her super villain name is Shrew. She used to work for a drug cartel as a member of a female enforcer group called the Hell's Bells. And um, she is like testifying against the cartel. And so it's our job to protect this woman. And so as, as Alex is like being debriefed and like, you know, getting familiarized with the case, Rain comes running in and she's like, it's Lorna. And, uh, <laughs> Val's like, what is, and she's like, they just called from the hospital. She's been rushed in and they don't know if she'll make it. So there you go. That is issue 79. And we have a little blurb here on the bottom that says next Larry Stroman returns, be here to meet the hell's bells. And that is issue 79. So we are here with issue 80 of X Factor. It's an interesting cover. It's got the uh, the Hell's Bells. Um, these uh, this group of uh, four mutant uh, supervillains. 
um, kind of going head to head with a couple of the X Factor team members. The issue actually begins. I love the opening panel. It's uh, it's Rain. She's wearing a blue hat that says Rain's World, and uh, it says Rain's World, Rain's World, Mutant Time, excellent. So <laughs> it's just. <laughs> Oh man, I love that movie. The the first Wayne's World movie. I mean, I actually liked the second one too. Like usually comedy sequels, not so good, but uh, I actually did like both Wayne's World and Wayne's World 2. Uh, so it's got Rain. She's sitting on the couch. She's like, hi everybody. Welcome to Rain's World. I'm Rain Sinclair. And then uh, Alex is there. He's like, party on Rain. She's like, party on Alex. And so they're all talking. Uh, at some point, Polaris comes in and... Uh, <laughs> They make like the, you know, the, the Abraham Lincoln comment, only in this case, Rain's like, if we were in Nova Roma, she'd be Babis Maximus. So I like that uh, it's like both a pop culture reference, but also a reference to the New Mutants and uh, their exploits in the weird like Roman city buried deep in the Amazon of, uh, of Nova Roma. Uh, but it's really great. Uh, but as she's in here uh, and Polaris comes in and all that, they're all on the set of Rain's World when suddenly like a brood uh, like breaks through the wall and uh, Rain comments that she doesn't like the lame aliens knockoffs. <laughs> uh, they got references like Alex runs away saying he's going to hurl. Oh, and Alex is totally he's got long hair and everything like Garth. He's wearing a hat. No, no, he actually doesn't have a hat on but he's got like long hair, like Garth and everything. It's great. Um, and then it like, we hear Polaris's voice and she's like, rain, rain. And she like shakes her awake. And we find out that, uh, rain is actually like asleep in a chair outside of a hospital room. And she's actually, uh, in the, in the hallway speaking with Val Cooper, who's like, Hey, you know, I, uh, Lorna's awake and she's talking. So like, come join us come join us in there. So they go into the hotel, not the hotel. They go into the hospital room and they see that, uh, Lorna has like all these, all, like all these metal contraptions kind of like wired to her jaw. Uh, and she's not, she's able to talk, but like not very well. Her voice is still very weak and she's like undergone this like facial reconstruction surgery specifically like on her jaw and all, and all that. Um, when the metal hand like punched her in the last issue, it was like right on the side of the face, but like her jaw is what took the brunt of the punch. Um, Alex is very upset about, uh, everything that's going on. Uh, Rain's very concerned with like this contraption and everything. Uh, and even Guido was like, yeah, they had to reset her jaw and then like, you know, wire it shut so that it can heal and everything. Um, so, so Lorna's just kind of saying like, uh, I mean, I'm in pain. It was some dude with like a metal arm. Uh, and he walked up and just said like, don't protect Marilyn Maycroft. And then he, you know, he, he knocked me cold and, and she woke up here and like Alex is trying to get in, you know, additional information. Like, did he say anything like I hate your guts or I'm your number one fan or anything like that? And then, um, she does mention like, well, he did say something about, this Marilyn Maycroft person. And so Guido fills Lorna in like, yeah, she was a member of this group of supervillains called the hell's bells that were like enforcers for a drug cartel. Uh, he's like, but like, you know, nothing about someone with a metal hand. I don't know. I don't know where that came from. Um, 
And so Lorna's like, all right, well, uh, let's, let's start protecting this, this Marilyn Maycroft woman. And they're like, you're in no position. Like you, you've got to heal and stay in the hospital. And, and Lorna's like, oh, heck no. Like I, I can handle myself. Like as soon as the doctor says I can walk, I'm out of here. And, you know, everyone on the team is just super impressed with, with Lorna's resolve here, which is, which is nice. Um, and then we, we cut into, uh, we go back up to Two Forks, Maine. So we check in with uh, Quicksilver and Multiple Man as they are here with Miss um, Argosi, the blue mutant who seems to have like musical related powers. Um, it was uh, at the end of last issue where they ended up like capturing her in that like abandoned warehouse thing. Um, and so they've, they've turned her over to the authorities. But if you recall, um, Jamie's like, I feel that she's innocent. Like she's got a good heart. Like Pietro, let's stay here. And uh, Pietro's like, all right, man, I'll, like, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. You, you've not been weird like this before. So if you've got a hunch, we might as well look into it and see if like, if your hunch is correct. So we've got um, Jamie Madrox in here talking to her like over the, the prison phone, you know, where they've got like the glass in between and you pick up the phone and, and talk and all that. And uh, he's like, look, you know, we're, we're still doing our, our PI thing. We're looking for information that can help like exonerate you or, or get the charges against you dropped, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so they head out, you know, and, and Jamie, th- there's a whole lot of stuff here um, where uh, Jamie is saying, like, it seems that like she's being railroaded because she suddenly became a mutant. And this is a small town where there really aren't any mutants here. And so it's really easy for anti-mutant sentiment to, to kind of come to the forefront as people hear glimpses of, you know, bad mutants from big towns and it, it permeates the small town mentality and everything. So, you know, they, they go about their business. They, they search, I forget where they go. I think it's like they they go into the office of the the one guy who seems to be like leading this rally against Ms. Argosi. Uh, it's a dude named Dick Roper, and I guess he runs like a local business called Sharp and Roper, which is like a wholesale distribution center. So it's like you know a, uh, like a small business or at least a large business, but in a small town, it's like a, you know, a major business. So he's a really important player within the town. He holds a lot of sway, probably also holds a lot of wealth and everything. Uh, but they, they break in and they're trying to find information with which they can, um, not necessarily get her free, but like introduce a scandal regarding Dick and, uh, just kind of, uh, man, I'm having a hard time thinking, <laughs> thinking today. Um, just like introduce him to a scandal and um, kind of make him a, a less reliable person to trust. And, you know, after searching the whole place, uh, you know, going through all kinds of records, everything, they're not able to find anything. Um, Jamie's like, there's no, you know, no illegal activities, no money laundering, no, no drug smuggling, no, no hoarding comic books, nothing like they're not, they're not doing anything. Like everything is, is as it should be. Everything's above board. Um, so they, they decide that they'll try to double down like the next night 
Um, here we actually go into and have our scene changed. So we're finally being introduced to these Hell's Bells characters that were mentioned at the end of last issue and who we now see on the cover of this one. So the first one that we're introduced to is uh, she seems to have fire powers and we find out that her name is Flambe. She wears like a red and yellow, not red and yellow, like an orange and yellow costume. She seems to be holding like sticks that are on fire uh, as like part of her costume, you know, as if she were like uh, one of those like fire stick twirlers and all that. Um, and she's like, she's holding this guy who seems to be some sort of like a guard or whatever. And she's like interrogating him. Like, where can I find Marilyn Maycroft? Like, where is she hiding? I'm, I need to find her. And so the guy, you know, says like the Barclay hotel room 319, but she like torches him anyway. Um, and then as she like turns this guy into like an ash pile, uh, we see this metal hand like come up behind her and like rest itself on her shoulder. And someone from off panel says like, good work Flambe. I had every confidence in you. Um, and then the person like is remaining in the shadows. So they're keeping this person a secret. We don't know who this metal handed person is. Like, I don't know if it's strife or uh, apocalypse, even like someone with these, uh, you know, metal hands sort of thing. Uh, meanwhile, back in Maine, we have uh, Guido, not Guido. We have Quicksilver and and Jamie, and this time they are talking to someone, like trying to get this dude to confess. Um, pretty much uh, what this guy's saying is like, "You're making a mistake. I agreed to talk to you out of some misguided belief that, despite the fact that you're one of them." that uh, you would listen to reason and look at the ed evidence and all that. Uh, I think it's maybe the prosecutor who they're, who they're talking to here, trying to get him to, to reconsider or, or wait, uh, maybe try to like delay the, the court appearance or whatever to allow the defense and, you know, these two private investigators to try to, um, you know, investigate the, these crimes uh, a little bit more. And of course, he's like, no, look, here, like, here, like, here's the thing. Uh, there was absolutely no evidence of, of foul play other than what we know she can do with, with mutant powers. Um, and so he kicks Quicksilver and Jamie out of his office. We then check in with, um, I don't even think she has like a superhero name, but uh, we check back in with the blue woman again, uh, Ms. Argosi, and she's sitting in her prison cell just kind of waiting. And the prison guard is starting to play the harmonica. And so we see all these musical notes like in the in the air again, um, coming from his harmonica and everything. And so she's she's commenting. She's like, oh, yes, that rookie. They forgot to tell him not to play music around me and she's like oh yes that's so lovely oh please keep doing it please keep going and she's like absorbing the i don't know like it, it's a really cool like visual representation it almost reminds me of that scene in uh dr strange in the multiverse of madness where they have like that battle with like the musical notes uh which i actually thought was that's like one of my favorite scenes in that movie uh, we're kind of getting something like that in, in these panels where we actually see the musical notes like surrounding her 
And she's able to then like, she uses the musical notes, like a lasso, it like ropes this guy and it like pulls him from his desk and everything. And I don't think that it's like physical manifestations of the musical notes. I just think it's used to illustrate like how and what she's doing with her power. Like she's sending the the music back at him and like almost in a physical way, it grabs him and, and pulls him and everything. From here, we actually check back in with the remaining X Factor teams. This time, they're in a place called the Barclay Hotel, uh, which is across the way in Virginia. And uh, we see that um, Guido and Alex and Rain are all hanging out in this place, and they seem to be guarding like a fourth person. Um, And so we can only believe that this fourth person is, in fact, Marilyn Maycroft, we learned that her name used to be Shrew when she was part of the Hell's Bells. So it seems to be that like, you know, state's witness, she's in a safe house. She's being protected like firsthand by three members of X Factor. And at one point, someone knocks on the door and says, you know, room service and Rain like immediately jumps up. She's sniffing something. She's she's caught a scent. And, um, like this dude wheels in, you know, the, the platter of like the room service. And like, as he's like going back out, um, rain, like kicks the like little waiter tray that they wheel up, you know, that has the food and, um, the, the waiter guy's like, what are you doing? There's nothing there. Why are you doing that? And, um, <laughs> rain notices. She's like, no, no, I picked up a scent. It's vague one of the members of the hell's bells. So she's called vague because her power is like invisibility. She can turn invisible. Um, but when rain knocked over the cart, it spilled gravy and ketchup on vague's like leg and shoulder. So everyone else can see her and they all start chasing her. And even, even strong guy says to Alex, he's like vague. He's like, and you complain strong guy is a dumb name. Like vague is ridiculous. Like that is such a dumb name. Um, but yeah, they, they see that uh, now that they can see her thanks to like the gravy and the ketchup and all that um, she starts running away, but they're, they're able to like chase her down the hallway. Eventually vague go like runs into like a dark room where there's not enough light to really see the gravy anymore. So they kind of lose her. Um, And all of a sudden, like rain comes running back around the corner, right as Alex and Guido are catching up and she's just yelling. She's like, run fire in the hole. And uh, at that point we see off panel, someone's yelling like, get her flambe. So, uh, you know, another member of the hell's bells has, uh, has arrived as well. Uh, So at this point we actually go back into Maine And we see Jamie, mostly Jamie, just like walking around, like trolling the local police, trying to uh, not necessarily intimidate them, but like goad them into doing more research uh, and uh, investigation into this case. We have the, I want to say he's a PI in here and like, not a PI, a prosecutor. And he's like, this dude threatened me. Like he came into my house and accused me of the murder. And he, like, he's doing all these ridiculous things. And, uh, we learned that, uh, Miss Argosi, her name is Rachel Argosi. She goes by the name Rhapsody. 
Um, so at least, you know, we, we have that. Um, and the dudes like the, the one police officer is like, you know, we're, we're holding her without bail. We're going to send her up to like the County thing. So this is all going to be behind us soon. Um, so we're just seeing like Jamie and, uh, and Pietro kind of like work the beaten path here and, 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 you know, causing, uh, stirring the nest here kind of thing, poking the, poking the beehive, I guess. Uh, we go back into Virginia and this time we see Alex and Wolfsbane and they're kind of going toe to toe with Flambe. It looks like if Flambe, she can like spit fire. She's like holding the, the like fire stick things up and she's like spitting fire from the fire sticks and everything. And, uh, so she's shooting fire at Alex. Alex is shooting like plasma beams back at her. Um, Alex tells rain to go grab a fire extinguisher. And then, uh, they mentioned something like they need to go up to the roof. Anyway, uh, we actually get some more, uh, the, like the building starts to shake and we see another character on the outside, like climbing up the side of the hotel. They figured out like what room shrew is being held in Marilyn Maycroft. And so they're climbing up the outside of this building. We find out that you know, this woman, she's like really big, almost as big as strong guy, like definitely as big as slab. Her name is Briquette. Um, and so she's, she's climbing up the outside of the building with like her fingers are like burning holes into the side of the building as she's climbing up. So seems kind of lame to have like two heat powered individuals on one team, especially when it's like a team of originally a team of five, <laughs> but you know, you, you take what members you can get, I suppose. Um, either way, she has climbed all the way up to the outside of the hotel room where uh, Guido is protecting Shrew and like the wall starts to shake and someone, someone else busts into, uh, into the room. Um, and we hear uh, Shrew calls her tremolo and it looks like she has like vibrational powers. I'm not sure if they're like avalanche and Richter where she can shake like rocks or if she just creates like vib vibrations and vibrational waves, kind of like how shockers weapons do. Um, it, it doesn't really explain it too much, but either way, she like shakes the building enough that like the wall busts in and, and she jumps in. Um, strong guy kind of gets in front of shrew. He's about to punch her uh, tremolo, but like she's able to start using like she's able to start using her like vibrational powers against strong guy. But luckily for him, it's like, it's kinetic energy. Um, so he's able to like start building this up as strength and uh, he's about to punch tremolo when someone behind him, like taps on his shoulder and like knocks him for a loop. And it's uh, it's briquette. Uh, so the two of them, well, really the three of them are kind of going at it. Guido and Briquette and Tremolo. Uh, we see Shrew start to uh, do her power, which is kind of like Rain, where like Rain can turn into like a human-wolf kind of hybrid. We see Shrew is able to turn into like a human-rodent hybrid. Now, I don't know if this gives her like additional mutant powers or like additional strength 
or anything like it does with rain. Uh, but she turns into like her shrew human hybrid form and starts attacking tremolo eventually like it causes like the whole hotel to like collapse in and of itself and strong guy like rides briquette all the way down into the this like crash and then he's able to to get up and out of it and as he is like starting to climb the stairs back up to like the rest of the hotel that didn't get demolished where alex and rain are someone like walks up to him and like pokes him in the shoulder and guido stops and he's like ow what the heck was that you know and he turns around and it's cyber uh you know the the wolverine villain cyber who has adamantium skin and who has like sharp claws almost like saber tooth like on each one of his fingertips and they're they're poisoned and that's what he says here he's like you can change your name from strong guy to dead guy that was a scratch from an adamantium claw tipped with poison it's gone right into your system and you've got somewhere between eight and nine hours to live and all it says is next month cyber and originally i was going to stop here uh, but i figured there's one more issue that is going to wrap up both of these storylines the one with rhapsody and the one with the hell's bells before we move into brand new storylines so i figured i might as well cover this last issue on this episode as well so this is uh next up we go into x factor number 81 so here we are the final issue of today's episode we are covering x factor number 81 and before we jump into the issue uh, there's one thing i want to say about this particular comic and that is this issue is cover dated august of 1992 so for those of you who have been, you know, longtime listeners of the show and have made their way through the Cap Wolf special episode that I had done uh, a couple years back, you may remember that Captain America 405 was the very first comic that I ever got. Um, it's the first one that I have any memory of actually picking out myself. And uh, I, I didn't actually get it at a comic shop. I actually got it uh, while I was on a camping trip. The campsite that we had gone to had like a small little like general store that had, you know, camping supplies and, you know, bait and tackle and that sort of stuff. Because the campsite that we went to was by a lake in the mountains. And in this little shop, they had a little back room that had like a stand of periodicals, you know, magazines and newspapers and things not like you know daily newspapers but you know bi-weekly monthly newspapers that sort of stuff and they also had a small selection of comic books maybe 10 12 different titles and one of the ones that they had on the shelf was captain america 405 and when i was a kid seven years old i loved werewolves and to see a character that i recognized from my trading cards captain america as a werewolf i I picked that one. I don't think there were any X-Men on the shelf because even with a werewolf on the cover, I probably would have grabbed an X-Men since I'd been collecting the trading cards with my sister all throughout 1992. But they did have Captain America as a werewolf. So naturally I picked that one out and I read it like, you know, a million times on that camping trip. And when we got back into town, I do remember asking my dad if we can go to like a comic book sh uh, shop to get 
the rest of the issues that made up that story. And so eventually my dad was able to track down a comic book shop not too far away from our house in San Jose, California called Pendragon Comics. It's actually a little town just north of San Jose called Milpitas. And it, again, it wasn't too far away from, from our house. And we went there and I looked for a couple of the other Captain America issues. Eventually I was able to track down like four of the six issues of the Cap Wolf storyline. Uh, but I do distinctly remember going into this shop. It was like a fairly small, uh, like very cozy little shop. And I don't remember too much about like the various long boxes and all that. But I do remember on one of the sides of the wall, they had like a stack of like new comics and all that. So I went over to the wall. I was looking for the new Captain America. It turns out the one that was on shelves was the same one that I had, 405, which was... Four. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. You probably heard some coughing there at the end. Had to had to turn it off and and back on for the recording. Water went down the wrong pipe yet again. Uh, <laughs> not a good day for me drinking stuff on the on on the podcast. Uh, but it was it was dated August of 1992. Maybe it was late August, and uh, so so that was the one that was still on shelves when when we went in to this comic shop. And I remember looking around. I don't actually remember getting any of the adjectiveless X-Men, but I was able to find an X book called X factor. And on the cover was this bald dude with like these weird sunglass things wearing like blue and yellow. And I recognize these, this character and also the ones in the top left, you know, where it has the, you know, Marvel comics and it has the little like head headliner thing there. Um, and I remember recognizing these characters from various trading cards that I had. And so I knew that these were X-Men characters and I knew that X-Factor was an X-Men team. So I, I chose this issue and this was the second comic that I ever got that I chose, you know, specifically for myself that I picked out at a shop. Uh, this was the first comic that I ever got at like an actual comic book shop. Um, the Captain America, like I said, I got on a camping trip. So this was really like the beginning of my uh, collecting days. Like after this, you know, we started going to the shop as often as we could and uh, and getting some issues. I do eventually remember by the end of, of 1992, like I tracking down uh, Uncanny X-Men number like 290 and 291. 290 specifically is the one where Storm is on the cover and she's like looking up to the top right of the issue. She's got her eyes closed and sadness. It's raining on her. Um, I also remember a couple months later, maybe it was like October 92 is probably the, the cover date. Um, but adjectiveless X-Men number 12, that's the, the hazardous territory issue where it's got, I think it's Beast, Wolverine, and Cyclops on the cover. And then like in the background is this dude. Um, named Hazard, who was a villain that uh, they introduced to Adjectiveless X-Men. He lasted for like two issues and then his storyline was done. And that was that was pretty much it. But like I remember getting that issue and uh, that was like the beginning of my X-Men collecting days. Like I, I don't recall ever actually collecting any X-Force comics. Uh, but lots of X-Men, lots of uncanny X-Men, and even a handful of X-Factor. Uh, 
Of course, I read all these issues when I was a kid with absolutely no context or anything, um, and some of them I liked better than others, but I do remember that I had this issue and I read it like a hundred times, having like no idea what was going on, but still just loving this issue. So I just wanted to share that story before we continue on with X Factor number 81. So the cover calls it or says a touch of cyber equals death. And the story starts off with uh, pretty much right where the last one left off, right? Like at the very end of Uncanny, or excuse me, of X Factor number 80, it ended with Cyber like poking Guido with his like adamantium razor sharp fingernail and saying like, you've been poisoned, bro. And we we continue with that. Um, Before we jump into the issue, there are a few changes to the creative team again. Um, so we still have Peter David writing. We still have Larry Stroman on pencils and we still have Al Milgram on inks, but we actually have Kevin Tinsley on colors and uh, Richard Starkings on letters. It looks like this is before comic craft. Uh, so it's just rich, rich S is, uh, is the name that he's credited as, but I'm assuming that's Richard Starkings since he lettered pretty much everything. <laughs> Um, in like the eighties and nineties and even in the two thousands, it's still like Richard Starkings and comic craft doing like letters and everything. The, so the first page pretty much just recaps it's cyber and he's like standing over a Guido who seems to be sweating. He seems to be lightheaded, not really doing very well. Um, and cyber gives us like a, a quick rundown of everything that's going on. Since this is like the third issue of like a three part storyline, he's kind of giving Guido the rundown. He's like, let's recap. Uh, X factor is presently guarding Marilyn Maycroft, AKA shrew former member of hell's bells. Shrew is scheduled to testify against the drug cartel that employs us. We want you to turn her over to us. Your incentive to do so will be the antidote to the poison currently coursing through you, courtesy of my poison-tipped adamantium claws. Oh, and in case you're wondering, I go by the name Cyber. I'm the Bell's mentor. Any questions? <laughs> so, like, that pretty much recaps, like, everything that you need to know that's going on with this situation. That's why all of these characters are where they are. Um, of course, at this point, like, Guido gets up, he punches Cyber... But then he realizes that uh, Briquette has her hand on the hotel boiler for the hotel that they're at in Virginia. And he realizes like, oh, great, like the boiler's going to explode. The whole hotel is going to explode. Overlook hotel style. And uh, he gets on the horn to Alex. He lets Alex know, hey, get out of here. The the hotel is going to explode. Um, of course, Havoc and Wolfsbane Spain are like teamed up against Flambe of the Hell's Bells right now. So Alex is like, go get Shrew and get out of the building. It's going to explode. I'll take care of Flambe and meet you outside. So uh, Flambe hears that it's going to explode. She begins to retreat, as does Vague. Wolfsbane goes into the room where uh, Tremolo and Shrew still are. She like, kicks her she like drop kicks tremolo right in the square of the back and like knocks her out of the hotel room window it's awesome and uh shrew even mentions like wow that was a nice kick where'd you learn it and she's like oh yeah i played a lot of football back home because you know she's from the uk and 
and they like their football there. I'm a big Man City fan myself. No, not really. I'm I'm actually not a <laughs> not a football fan at all. Uh, but I have qu- caught a few English Premier League games, and like the four matches that I've watched, like three of them were Man City, and it was excited. Maybe not exciting. Not like American football or hockey or baseball um, or even playoff basketball. Uh, but it was it was all right. It wasn't too bad. I haven't seen much Champions League though with all of the other like European teams, I like, I, I pretty much check out for that and I don't follow the world cup either. So not really a big football fan, but it stands to reason that rain growing up in Scotland would have, uh, would have played football a little bit here and there. Um, even if it was just at like church with Reverend Craig and the other kids, um, either way, um, at this point there, the, everyone's out of the building now, Wolfsbane has rescued Shrew. They've gotten out. Alex is already outside waiting. And he's like, Rain, where's Guido? Like, he, he's the one that told us it was going to explode. I, I would expect him to be out here. And she's like, no, I haven't, I haven't seen him. So Alex starts to run back into the hotel, knowing it's about to explode. But unfortunately, he doesn't get there in time. The building explodes, like, right as he's running back inside. And it, like, knocks him really far. Uh, but before we find out if he's okay... We change scenes one last time to uh, Twin Forks, Maine, where Quicksilver and Multiple Man are trying to find evidence that will prove the innocence of Rachel Argosi, a.k.a. Rhapsody. We actually see Jamie like reaching in through the prison window, which is hilarious because there's no like glass or anything. It's just like good old fashioned like barred windows like they're in the Wild West. Uh, which is not something I usually associate with Maine, um, but who knows? Maybe at one point in uh, America's history, Maine was the frontier. Who knows? Um, either way, he's like reaching in. And he's like, "Hey, I'm here to to break you out," and she's like, "Yeah, but you can't you can't climb in through here, and I, and I can't fit out." And he's like, "Ah, oh, don't worry about it." So he like reaches his hand in through the barbed through the barred windows and like kind of just bonks the side of the building so he's able to create a dupe so he creates a dupe inside her jail cell and then walks to the actual like door of the jail cell and creates another dupe on the outside of the jail cell um, who like goes looking for keys to you know unlock her and get her out he's kind of decided that uh, he's going to free her uh, meanwhile, we have Quicksilver looking all over for him and he gets to the prison like right as Jamie and Rhapsody are like making their escape. Apparently, not only did he unlock her cell, but he also helped her get her violin and her flute. So she's playing the violin and the two of them are like floating away. Of course, Quicksilver's like, what the heck is going on? Like, this is unbelievable. Um, and then we actually cut. We see quick no not we see multiple man and rhapsody like in the cornfield in kansas again both naked again for some reason and uh they're like having a discussion like i don't know how her powers work like if she's able to use the music to create these images in their mind almost like an astral plane thing like i'm not quite sure exactly how all of this is happening uh peter david doesn't really explain it he leaves it a little abstract so i guess we just have to assume that the music is taking him to this like beautiful place in his mind where they're able to communicate psionically somehow through the music, I guess. I I don't know. Uh, But they're having a conversation and Jamie is 
mentioning the fact that uh, he he is um, he's he's just feeling this incredible beauty. It's the best he's ever felt ever. Um, and he's like, I, I just, I like the things you do. It's incredible and believable. I've never felt like this. And she says, like, I know I tried to convince Mr. Sharp of that as well. Uh, and he's like, what do, you, what do you mean you tried to convince him when? And she's like, the night that he died, like I went to his house and I played my music for him and made him feel nothing but ecstasy. But it overwhelmed him so much that his heart stopped. And Jamie's like, wait, hold on. Like you said that you didn't hurt him. And she's like, yeah, I didn't. He wasn't feeling any pain. And, but then his heart stopped and he was dead. And he's like, whoa, hang, like, hang on. Like you killed him. And she's like, uh, no, I didn't. He's like, yeah, you're crazy. Like you're a complete nutcase. You're a flaming psycho. He said he yells in into her face and he like snaps out of this weird, like corn dream, fever dream that he was having. And they're like back in the real world here. And uh, Quicksilver has been like running underneath the two of them to create like an updraft so that they'll like lower to the ground slowly. And when they get back to the ground, Jamie's like, all right, let's uh, let's put her back in prison. She's crazy. And uh, that's exactly what he does. He they put her in the prison cell and um, she's like yelling, like, please don't leave me in here, Jamie. Without music, I'll die, please. And he's like standing outside the prison, just like quietly crying to himself. And he just says, like, come on, Pietro, let's go home to Washington and X Factor. There's nothing for us here. And like that closes the book on Rhapsody and that whole storyline. And I honestly have no idea if that character has ever appeared again, ever. Um, not on trading cards, not in other comics. Like I have absolutely no idea. I don't remember that character at all. Despite the fact that I read this issue so many times as a kid, I guess I just didn't know what was going on and never remembered her um, until like my, my first real read through of the Peter David run like 10 years ago. And I was like, who is this character? This is an interesting new character. And yeah, like I have no idea. I I've, I'm not all the way through and caught up on like the current Krakoa era. I know a lot of deep cut mutant characters have come back. So maybe she's one of the characters that's made her return on Krakoa. But, but I have no idea, and I don't have any recollection of her ever appearing ever again. I've not read all of the 2000s X-Factor investigations that Peter David did, so it's possible that she appeared in one of the like 150 issues or so that he wrote. I've, I've read maybe like half of his uh, return to X-Factor when they were doing X-Factor investigations, so I hope she's made a return, but uh, I have no recollection no knowledge if she ever has so anyone out there who's read like all of Inf uh, x factor investigations if they know uh let me know in uh i guess in the like i'll put a question in this show that you can see on spotify it'll be like what issues did she appear after this and you can answer me there <laughs> uh, either way we check back in uh, at the crime scene in virginia where we have like alex and wolfsbane and shrew and they're like, they're looking for strong guy. There starts to be like this rumble in the, like where the building has exploded. And so he's absorbed all of that kinetic energy from the explosion and then the collapse of the building and all that. And of course, with Guido's power, any kinetic energy that he absorbs, he has to almost immediately redirect that energy and expend it. Otherwise it will like permanently deform him 
which is why he's like seven feet tall and like super top heavy. You know why he's his back and his arms are just so huge and muscular. It's because he he became deformed uh, because he was unable to release certain pent up energy. So he just like pummels the ground Donkey Kong style, like Smash Brothers, just going at it, smacking the ground. The police arrive and they're like, oh, no, he's gone nuts. Quick, stop him. And, and like Havoc has to step in and be like, no, no, it's fine. Like it's his mutant power. Like he absorbed the brunt of the explosion and he has to um, like immediately expend it. And so after that, after the dust has settled, settled um, Alex walks over and he's like, you know, you OK, big fella? And Guido's just like, oh, swell, uh, I've been poisoned. And Alex is just like, what? <laughs> Uh, and he explains to him, he's like, yeah, dude, some dude with like metal skin on his arms, like poisoned me and says that like, he'll give me the antidote, but only if we uh, exchange like the, the antidote for shrew. Um, so he'll be calling, he'll like, he'll be getting in contact with X factor with the instructions. Um, and Alex is like, well, that sucks. Like we're not going to turn over shrew. So we're going to go back to base and I guess we'll wait uh, for his call and we'll figure it out then. And that's exactly what happens. They go back to um, X-Factor headquarters and they meet up with Val. They fill Val in on, uh, on, on what's going on. And as, as they're there, they get the phone call. Um, it's Cyber. He calls, pretty much tells Val the same thing that he tells Guido, which is like, Guido's got eight or nine hours to live because I poisoned him. And if you want to save his life, then you have to bring... Marilyn Maycroft, and he, he tells him when and where, you know, midnight, Judiciary Square, uh, Judiciary Square stop on the Metro. So the subway in, in, in DC. And like, that's, that's pretty much it. Um, at, after that scene, we actually check in with like X Factor's resident doctor. And at this point he's like, yeah, we did our best to synthesize the poison, uh, that strong guy has been infected with. And like, we're, we're not a hundred percent sure, but we're fairly certain that we've come up with like the, uh, the antidote ourselves. Like we've created our own, um, cure for this, uh, for this poison. Um, and so Alex is like, all right, great Guido, there, there's your antidote. Go ahead and take it. And Guido's like, uh, yeah, you know, I don't know if the, like, those are not really very good odds. Like he's pretty much giving us like a 50, 50 shot that uh, this antitoxin will clear the poison out of my system. So let's be real, Alex. Like, even if we, even if we take down these drug dealers, um, it's not going to take down the, all the drug cartels. Like, even tomorrow, there will be 50 more in its place. So, like, you know, it's in the grand scheme of things, is it really that big of a deal if we get the actual antidote from cyber uh, by exchanging Marilyn Maycroft? And so Alex makes like an, an executive decision. Guido kind of calls him out and he's like, you know, it's easy for you to give me orders when it's not your life on the line. So Alex walks up to Guido and he's like, you know what, pal, like you're absolutely right. I'm telling you what to do. Uh, but like, I've got no skin in the game. So Alex grabs the vial of poison that they synthesized from Guido's blood and he drinks it. And he's like, there we, there you go. Now we're both infected with this poison and I'm telling you, we're not going to give shrew to this bad guy. We're going to trust our doctors and the, uh, the, the antidote. So he takes the vial of, of antidote and he gives it to Guido. And he's like, you know, bottoms up big guy. And like that earns 
that I feel like that earns a lot of respect, not just from Guido, but like the rest of the team. Uh, at this point, we actually go to New York Harbor because they're setting up the next storyline. Uh, and we have like two pages of this random boat is like coming into the dock at New York Harbor and the police are like on the docks, pretty much not allowing the ship to, to like make birth here. Uh, and pretty much what he says is like, Hey, you're, you're illegally in us waters, you know, and we, we learned that it's a Genosian ship. He like tells even the police to like set their guns ready in case anyone tries to like disembark and someone does a dude named prodigal with like a giant head. Uh, he looks almost like brainchild, but he's actually tall. Um, and he, he's like, I was told of like the, of the American dream that like you take in, you know, refugees and, you know, the, the poor and the weary and the destitute, like, isn't that your whole shtick here in America? Uh, he's like, that's all that we want is like, we just were outcasts in our own country. We just want a place where we can live in peace. And the guy's like, yeah, well, you know, I, I, there's not really much we can do about that. And so that whole scene ends. But like I said, it's, it's a quick little interlude to set up the, like the next story arc that, that uh, X factor is going to deal with a little bit of foreshadowing of, of Genosha and that sort of stuff. Uh, but then we go and it's uh, it's now midnight. It's the Judiciary Square stop on the Metro and X Factor is here and they are waiting. And uh, of course, the Hell's Bells show up almost right away. And they're like, all right, give us shrew and we'll give you the antidote. Um, and then uh, sorry, sorry about that background noise there. And then like Cyber shows up and uh, like a whole battle ensues we've got uh guido starts like right before the battle starts like guido's like oh no my stomach i'm dying uh and uh like tricks everybody as cyber comes up he's like oh by the way i was faking i actually feel just fine we we made our own antidote sucker and uh the like this train pulls into the station it's actually being driven i don't know if driven's the right word piloted i don't know if that's the right word either conducted i guess uh, by Val, she stops and like out of the train comes running like 10 dupes, uh, 10 Jamie Madrux dupes. So at this point, you can assume that like Quicksilver and, and multiple men have, have arrived back in D.C. So now they're part of the battle and like a battle royale breaks out. You've got strong guy going up against cyber. You've got uh, like Havoc going up against cyber as well. Uh, we've got multiple men fighting like Tremolo. We've got Wolfsbane knocking out uh, Flambe. It's it's really great. Uh, eventually, Quicksilver knocks out Tremolo, but then Briquette grabs him, and like she's burning him because he's like she's really hot, like temperature wise. Eventually, Guido like picks up a rock. It looks like and like chucks it at her, or no, maybe he just jumps. It looks like maybe he just leaps and lands as he's punching her in the face, sends her flying um makes a crack at quicksilver he's like hey quicksilver i guess you're really hot stuff now huh <laughs> just a terrible joke <laughs> um and then yeah they've got uh for some reason shrew it seems is like she's there and she's on the like the train tracks or something um and she eventually comes in she grabs 
cyber and like bites him in the neck where he's not covered in adamantium and uh, knocks him onto the tracks. And then another train comes through and everyone's like, oh no, like we just completely failed our mission. Like Shrew's dead. And uh, Quicksilver is like, oh no, don't worry about it. Like I ran across the tracks and grabbed her and, and brought her back just in time. And so everyone is happy. They've succeeded in their mission. Job well done. High fives all around. Guido is like, check it. We finally won one clean. You were right. Like all we had to do was trust you and all this. He's like, I should have known that like you had the guts to, to drink the same poison. Like, ah, what a way to lead the team. Great job. And all this. And uh, as a, as Shrew and, and Guido and, and rain are like celebrating their victory, Quicksilver like runs over to Alex and he's like whispering to him. He's like, are you crazy? You drink poison? What are you nuts? And Alex whispers back to Quicksilver. He's like, no, when Guido wasn't looking, I poured, I poured out the poison and I drank water. Uh, <laughs> uh, and Quicksilver's like, you sank to deceit in order to gain loyalty. And he whispers, he's like, Summers, my respect for you has just increased a thousandfold. <laughs> and the issue ends like, that's it. That wraps up the story arc. That's the end of the Hell's Bells. They've rescued Shrew and, and done everything. Like, uh, like Guido said, they won one clean. And all it says is next, the expatriates know they're not former football players, plus the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. We think you know who they are. And uh, that will that will do it for today's coverage of Peter David's X Factor. We are now three fifths of the way done. So we're over the halfway point. We've got maybe seven issues of X Factor left to cover. Um, and that's including three issues that make up the executioner song. And so we're not even going to cover those like issue by issue. And then I think we have uh, one more um, annual X factor annual number eight, which is like a 40 page story written by Peter David. So I think, yeah, I think next week we'll do, uh, we'll cover the expatriate story and then we'll do like a quick recap of, uh, X factors role in executioner's song. And then we'll, we'll round out the month covering the last few issues of the Peter David run and the final annual. I think, I think that's how we're, I think that's how I have everything scheduled out. It should be in like chronological order, but I'm not entirely sure either way. That is it for today's episode. And uh, yeah, I loved these issues. Like I said, issue 81 has a kind of a, a special place in my heart as it was one of the first comics I ever got. And it was the first X book that I ever, ever got for myself. Um, uh, I have a couple memories and there's a couple issues I have from like 1991. Like I have X-Men number three and I have like uncanny, like 284 or something like that. Um, but I think those were like given to me by my sister. And I don't even remember if I got those as a kid or if I got those when I was a little older. Um, I, I honestly have no recollection. I have them in my collection, but I don't remember how I got them. But I remember that the first time I ever went to a comic shop, when I was seven uh, specifically picking out X factor 81. And like, I probably still have that one in one of my random long boxes in the garage of like all of my childhood comics. So yeah, I just, uh, yeah, special place in my heart. And I hope that you guys all enjoyed it uh, as much as I did. So, Bub, if you like the show and want to keep the conversation going, you can reach out to me via email, talksnicked at gmail.com.
Um, if you listen to the show on Spotify, then uh, you should see now that there's a way to interact directly with me and the show. And that is be, uh, uh, by way of a question and answer option. So when you click on the episode and you go to the episode description, there's like a question and you can actually go in there and, and type your answer. And then I can pick like my 10 favorite answers, assuming I even get that many and uh, I can display them. Um, so just a, a fun way to interact with the show. Uh, if you're looking for something a little bit more personable, then check the show notes for a link to join the talk and snick discord. It's a, a small little community of, uh, many of the guest hosts that I've had on for Snicktoons, uh, as well as a couple other fans of the show and just friends of mine who uh, also happen to like X-Men and Wolverine. And we just chat about all, all X related stuff. So it's a lot of fun. And uh, if that sounds like something that's uh, up your alley, then uh, like I said, check the show notes and click the link to join the discord. Um, otherwise stay tuned, uh, as, uh, let's see, like I said, we've got two more episodes of talking GC coming out this month. And then, um, also every Saturday, we've got new episodes of Saturday morning Snicktoons as we make our way through season four of X-Men, the animated series this upcoming Saturday, it's myself and a returning special guest host as we have a little discussion and then do some live commentary for season four, I want to say off the top of my head, episode six, Courage. So uh, a couple of things in the works there. So just stay tuned and uh, I'll see you in the Discord. Until next time, bub.